The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, let me simply begin my message this morning by um, saying, what does Easter mean to you? What, what do you really feel that you're celebrating on this Easter holiday? And if I were to really probe a little deeper and ask you, what do you actually really believe about the Easter story? Because 2,000 years ago, on the first Easter, something happened and the world would never be the same again. And the text that I want to look at for my message this morning is John 20. And if you have your uh, devices up, you know, hopefully you have gotten on to the bulletin page. Toward the bottom of it, you'll see all of the texts and all of the quotes there from the sermon. And as you can see, there's a lot there, so we better jump right into it, okay? I want to start the first half by examining the encounters of the resurrected Jesus in this chapter of John. And then in the second half of the message, I want to look at what it means for us to believe in Jesus when we don't have the benefit of these first disciples who testified to seeing the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, him in the flesh, alive after he was dead. So this chapter begins in verses 1 and 2. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So the story begins with this woman named Mary Magdalene going out to the tomb of Jesus very early in the morning on that Sunday morning while it was still dark. Mark's gospel tells us that she wasn't alone, but that there were other women with her. And their intention was to go and to anoint the body of Jesus with spices, which was the Jewish tradition of treating the dead at that time. And when they arrived, they discovered that this huge stone that was covering the tomb had been rolled away. And they immediately jumped to the conclusion that the body had been stolen. And so they run to Peter and to John and reported to them, And immediately, Peter and John start running to head to the tomb themselves. John adds the totally unnecessary but very personal detail that Peter took off first, but he passed him and got to the tomb first. And then in verse 5 to 7, speaking of himself, he said, He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So that sort of fits their two personalities if you know anything about Peter and John. John gets there first, but he kind of stands aloof a bit at the entrance of the tomb and doesn't go in. But he just thoughtfully assesses what he sees when he looks inside. Peter shows up and without a moment's hesitation, barges right past John and enters the tomb to get a closer look. And it's hard to tell from the English translation, but there's this really heavy focus on the burial linens. It seems to be what is the detail that has gripped Peter and John. If the body had simply been stolen, then you would have expected either not to find any of the linens that were wrapped around Jesus, or at least they should have been kind of laying very unorganized on the floor of the tomb. 
Instead, they found the linens essentially undisturbed, as if the body had passed right through them, exactly where they were. And that verb that is translated in most English Bibles as the linens were lying there could also actually be translated as they were twirled or kind of spun around. And so the picture that we're actually given here is of these linens still wrapped around as if they were around a body like an empty cocoon when the butterfly had already escaped. And so they're just fixated on these linens and they're just staring at this saying, wow, that's weird. And Peter and John leave to return to the other disciples and Mary is there by herself where she will encounter Jesus herself. But I'm going to skip over that part of the story about Mary and come back to it a little bit later in the sermon, and you'll understand why. That same night on that Easter Sunday, all the disciples except Thomas are huddled together in Jerusalem behind locked doors. They're too scared to go out into public because they're afraid they'll be hunted down and killed just like their master was. And so verse 19 to 20, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And so having seen Jesus with their own eyes, the disciples' fear is immediately transformed into joy when they realize that he actually is Alive, And then in verse 24 to 25, it says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. If I believed in patron saints, Thomas would be my guy, okay? I have so much empathy for him. I don't know about you, but... When a bunch of my friends hype something up that I haven't experienced, my instinct is to go in the opposite direction and become super skeptical of whatever their claims are. I mean, you got to be exaggerating. Things like that just don't happen. And there's no way that it's as good as you guys claim. You're all crazy. Because the truth is, reality never seems to live up to the hype, does it? I understand how it feels being on the other side of that skepticism. Whenever I tell stories of the crazy things I went through on my mission trips to Africa, and I can see the look on people's eyes that they think, you've got to be exaggerating here, if not outright lying here, because stuff like that doesn't happen in this world, you know? And when I tell them the stuff I've seen in Africa, they just simply don't believe it. Well, that's exactly how Thomas feels, as the rest of the disciples are just gushing over this encounter that they had with Jesus. Verse 26 to 28, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. John doesn't tell us whether Thomas took up Jesus on his offer to stick his fingers into his side, or into his hands. It sounds like he actually didn't need to. Just seeing Jesus in the flesh was all Thomas needed to believe like the other disciples did, that indeed their master, their Lord, had risen from the dead. I simply want to make two points about these encounters. 
The first is this, that these accounts do not read like ancient religious myths. They have an authentic quality to them that is more like eyewitness reporting that you would see in our modern times than you typically see in ancient literature. There is this chaotic messiness about the way that these accounts unfold. They don't play out, in other words, like a carefully constructed origin story intended to give legitimacy to a brand new religion. For one thing, if you wanted to strengthen your argument about the resurrection, you wouldn't choose women to be the ones who witnessed it first because they were considered unreliable in Jewish culture. They weren't even allowed to testify in court. In fact, when the women go tell the disciples what they saw at the tomb, in Luke's gospel, in Luke 24, 11, it says, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Talk about male chauvinism, right? These are even Jesus' own followers, and they don't give any credence to these women and what they're testifying. As leaders of a new religious movement, you would want your origin story to build up their credibility as much as possible. But often these gospel accounts paint these apostles in a really bad light. They just don't look very good at all in these stories. They hide like cowards after Jesus' death. And rather than expecting the resurrection, they are utterly confused by it. And in fact, they resist believing it until the evidence is just overwhelming and they can't deny that Jesus rose from the dead. C.S. Lewis, an Oxford don who was an expert in ancient myths and legends, commented on the Gospels. I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. Of the gospel text, there are only two views. Either this is reportage or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. If it is untrue, it must be narrative of that kind. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. What Lewis is arguing is that if these are not raw, honest eyewitness accounts, as they seem to be, then these gospel authors wrote what is known as realistic fiction, made to simulate eyewitness testimonies, which was a genre of literature that simply did not exist in ancient times. It just wasn't there. And he, as an Oxford scholar, says, I can testify to this. I've read it all just about. And there's nothing like the gospels in ancient literature. The second point that I want to make about these accounts is the importance of witnessing Jesus' resurrection to the faith of those first followers of Christianity. How did these followers go from being cowards huddled in fear in locked doors to men and women who preached the gospel fearlessly even at the cost of their own lives? It was the fact that they had personally seen Jesus or at least heard the testimony of his resurrection. They saw the resurrected Lord. That's why after he reveals himself to Thomas, he scolds Thomas and says, stop doubting and believe. Paul would echo this truth in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, when he says, for what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. As Paul points out, the testimony of those who had seen the risen Jesus was of first importance for the Christian faith. A few verses later, he would go as far as to say, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. The claim of the first Christians wasn't that their faith told a great story or helped make sense of this world or even that it offered a compelling philosophy for life so that you could live the good life. Their claim was simply that they were witnesses to a man who died and rose from the dead and claimed to be the savior of the world. George Ladd writes, Christianity is not just a code for living or a philosophy of religion. It is rooted in real events of history. To some people, this is scandalous because it means that the truth of Christianity is inexplicably bound up with the truth of certain historical facts. And if those facts should be disproved, Christianity would be false. You know, Matthew's gospel records the efforts that the religious leaders went through to try to avoid this very situation of an empty tomb. In Matthew chapter 27, 62 to 66, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, referring to Jesus, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he had been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate said, answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. In other words, knowing that Jesus had predicted his own resurrection, the Jewish leaders worked together with the Roman occupiers to do everything in their power to make sure that Jesus' body stayed put in that tomb. And remained unmoved. And yet, despite putting an entire Roman guard to watch over that tomb, on Easter morning, that tomb was empty. And they realized what a disaster the empty tomb would mean for them, of how it would energize Jesus' followers and give them new life after they just saw him crucified. But despite their intense desire to kill this Christian movement at the very start of it, they were never able to produce this body as evidence that Jesus was actually dead. And that's because he wasn't dead. He had risen back to life. You know, even most secular historians acknowledge that something, something clearly happened on that first Easter Sunday which convinced Jesus' followers that he had risen from the dead. That much they don't deny even if they don't believe in the Christian faith. But rather than accepting the truth of the resurrection, they have tried to come up with every alternative explanation possible, no matter how implausible the alternatives may be. 
For example, one theory says that Jesus just became unconscious and he awoke in the grave alone in the dark. And despite the fact that he had just been crucified and the fact that a Roman centurion had thrust a spear into his side, he somehow managed to single-handedly roll away the huge stone and evade detection by the entire Roman guard and somehow then escape and say, I'm alive. Or the other tactic has been to attack the credibility of his followers, arguing that there was a massive conspiracy. They all, all the Christians got together, all the Christ followers, and catch this plan, and they were all going to stick to this lie. Or there was simply mass hysteria out of the terrible grieving of the death of their leader and out of that wishful thinking that led them to have visions of seeing Jesus alive. But Charles Colson argues, is it really likely that a deliberate cover-up, a plot to perpetuate a lie about the resurrection could have survived the violent persecution of the apostles, the scrutiny of early church councils, the horrendous purge of the first century believers who were cast by the thousands to the lions for refusing to renounce the lordship of Christ? Is it not probable that at least one of the apostles would have caved in and renounced Christ? before being beheaded or stoned. But not one of them did. They instead testified to the exact opposite. I saw the Lord. I saw him living in the flesh. And I will never deny that testimony of what I witnessed on that Easter day. In other words, how could countless Christians give up their lives for a cover-up, knowing that the resurrection was just a lie? But instead, one after another, they faced their death without fear, refusing to renounce their faith. Something happened on that first Easter Sunday that changed their lives and changed the world forever. Well, you may, in reply to all of this, say, well, that's great for those five to 600 people because they had this unique benefit of seeing and touching Jesus after the resurrection. But what good does that do for me? I mean, isn't the implication of Thomas's testimony that we can't be expected to believe in Jesus' resurrection unless we ourselves get to see him with our own eyes and touch him with our own hands? And Jesus anticipates the struggle to believe without the benefit of personally witnessing his resurrected body. And so right after Thomas confesses to Jesus, my Lord and my God, Jesus tells Thomas in verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then right after that, John adds this commentary to the gospel he just wrote in verses 30 to 31. Jesus performed many other signs of the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So one of the things John is saying is, although we may not have been able to be there, reading these eyewitness accounts, we can also come to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But there's something else being said here in John 20 that is so important, is that our faith isn't limited to simply reading about these events in the Gospels. Let's go back to that moment when Peter and John left the tomb to tell the other disciples what they had witnessed. Mary Magdalene is now there all by herself at the tomb. And in verse 11, it says this, 
Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. John captures the intimate details of this tender reunion between Jesus and Mary. And after recognizing him, Mary clings to Jesus. But then he ends up reacting in a way that seems a bit cold-hearted. In verse 17, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, what does Jesus mean when he tells Mary, Don't cling to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father? Well, I think this is what's going on. Mary is clinging to Jesus because at one moment she thought she lost him for good. But when she suddenly discovers the joy that he is back, it's almost like she is saying, I'm never letting you go. You're not leaving my sight. I'm holding on to you forever. And I believe what Jesus is saying to her in that moment is this. You can't hold on to me like this. This isn't how it's going to play out. Because the truth is, I'm going back to my father in heaven. But what she does seem to be saying to him is this. You will be able to hold on to me permanently, but it isn't going to go down like this. It won't happen this way. Instead, I need to return to heaven so that in essence, I can come back to you through the giving of the Holy Spirit. Gary Burge describes it like this. In telling her not to hold on, Jesus is saying that his permanent return and presence must come in another form. She cannot embrace what she finds in the garden. Things are going to change. Jesus' correction is a spiritual redirection away from Jesus' physical presence, a preparation for the spirit that is about to be given. This will be the momentous gift that will return Jesus to them permanently. And later that evening, Jesus will appear to his disciples and again, the spirit is invoked in what he says to them. In verses 19 to 20, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hand and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So Jesus greets them with this word, peace be with you. In the Hebrew, it's shalom alechem, which is a common greeting in Hebrew, which is used to this very day. But after that resurrection, Jesus would repeat this phrase over and over again, Shalem Alechem, peace be with you. And it seems to be that he is trying to communicate a deeper message than simply greeting them. And he ties that peace with the giving of his spirit. In verses 21 to 22, it says, Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. 
you can't really understand what's going on here at post-resurrection unless you realize what Jesus was teaching his disciples right before he went to the cross in what is known as the farewell discourse in John chapter 14 to 16. Because in those verses, he lays out everything that's about to happen and it becomes fulfilled after the resurrection. In John 14, verse 25 to 27, it says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And then in John 16, he, he articulates it even further about what's going to happen. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what I, he will make known to you. And then he says this kind of cryptic thing to them. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. And the disciples are utterly confused about what Jesus is talking about at this point. And so he clarifies in verse 20 and onward, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and will rejoice. And no one will take your, away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have, asked for anything. You have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Now, what it sounds like Jesus is saying is, you're going to be sad when you see me go to the cross and die. But when you see my resurrected body, you're going to be happy again. But actually, this entire context of John 14 to 16 is about the Holy Spirit. And so what Jesus seems to be saying is, you're going to be sad because I'm going to leave you. But then in just a little bit, I'm going to be right back with you. And what he seems to be talking about is the Holy Spirit being poured out on his followers. And what he says is this, it's going to be even better than what you experienced when I was physically walking among you. Because through my spirit that will abide in you, that will live in your heart, the very things that I feel toward you, the very truths that I want to communicate to you, I'm going to do through my spirit right to your spirit. And it's going to be an intimacy like the world has never experienced before. And that will be your joy. You see, we can come to the faith in Jesus Christ by reading the Bible and hearing these testimonies, but that's only the start of the journey of faith. What Jesus says is what's really going to grow you in your faith is when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And as you read the testimony in the Bible, but experience the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're going to feel my nearness and the validity of my testimony and know that I am the Messiah. I am God. That is the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our world to this very day. That 
is how we, though we did not get to stick our fingers into his hand or see the scar in his side, come to believe that Jesus is Lord because of that work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's what Peter says in his letter, 1 Peter 1, verse 8 to 9, and I'll close with this. Though you have not seen him, speaking to the next generation of believers, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine. And that is my prayer for all of us on this Easter Sunday. Whatever your fears, whatever it is that you are going through right now, to know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the answer to all of that. Because Christ is risen. And his Holy Spirit is in this world and in our hearts to testify that this is the truth. And what Christ says is it may seem like those people living in the first century were really the blessed ones. They were the ones that had such a privilege to walk with Jesus. But Jesus says, no, it's even better that I go and give you my spirit. Because through my spirit, I am going to let you know my heart for you. Know my love for you. Everything that I want to teach you, the the relationship, in other words, is going to continue on because my spirit will live in you. Jesus is here right now. We don't speak to him like a third person figurehead that is dead and gone. He is a living being who is present with us right now, wanting to strengthen us and encourage us on this Easter worship. Amen? And that is my prayer for all of us as we celebrate Easter. May you know that witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart that bears testimony to Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and Lord. Just uh, take a moment to pray with me. Um, Are we doing communion today? (laughs) You guys all got the elements? Uh, I'm the lead pastor of this church, (laughs) but I know today I'm not looking like I know what I'm doing here. (laughs) Could I have one of the elements, please? It's a... Let me pray and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Lord, we think of this first Easter that we just have been looking at. The tremendous sadness and the confusion and all of that that was swirling in the heads of these first followers of yours who despite everything you had taught them during your time with them were still so stubbornly uh, ignorant and unbelieving so that all they could think was that a conspiracy was underfoot when your body was gone. But then you appeared in the flesh and revealed yourself to them. And in that appearance, testifying that your words are true and that your claims are true, that you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God, you are our Lord. 
And though we were not privileged to be a part of that generation, many of us in this place could testify to the same witness of your spirit in us, testifying to the truth of your claim, that you are Savior, that you are Lord. And so let the witness of the Holy Spirit in us bear the fruit of that spirit to give us the peace that transcends all circumstances so that even as the world frets and worries over so many things, we as your people can rejoice in the peace that you alone can offer us. So we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. If you have the elements with you, let's come to the Lord's table. One of the things I've enjoyed so much about this pandemic time is that we've been kind of taking communion every Sunday. And we didn't normally do that pre-pandemic. But something about coming to the table and taking part in communion together has been so life-giving to me. But the problem was a lot of that was kind of virtual. You know, you get a handful of people in the sanctuary and you're sort of wondering, like, does anyone have these elements at home? Or does anyone just kind of watch uh, and, and watch the rest of us do it? But as we're gathered here in this outdoor service on this Easter Sunday, uh, it's so awesome that in this one physical place, we could take this communion together. The night that Christ was betrayed, he gathered his disciples around that upper room and he transformed radically the meaning of the Passover meal. He broke that bread and said, this bread now symbolizes my broken body, broken for you. And then with the cup of wine, he had them all drink and say, this wine represents now the blood shed for you for the cleansing of your sins. So he says, whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So as we think about what Christ has done for us, let's go ahead and take first from this bread and then secondly take from the cup and then just go ahead and meditate for a few minutes and then our worship team will close out our service with a couple songs of response.